So I want to do something a little different. I want to change things up just a little bit today. Uh, as you know, we've been following the lectionary since April of last year. Uh, and we're at kind of at the place now where the, the readings start to circle back on themselves uh, and on themes that we've recovered fairly recently. And so I want to step away from that for a little while. Uh, and instead, at least for the summer, uh, so this is bonus content for you people that are faithful all year long. Uh, and, and I want to continue the story of the disciples after Jesus' ascension and enthronement in heaven and, and the resulting day of Pentecost that saw the overflow of the Holy Spirit into the lives of the early church. And so today I want us to pick up reading the story right where we left off uh, in Acts chapter 3. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 21 and then jump down to 25 to 26. So if you're following along in your Bibles, I hope you are, uh, Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. So now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and he said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back. That your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. And then jumping down to verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and all your offspring shall, all, through your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first 
to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And let's pray together. God, our Father, we know we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from you. And so we ask you to take now what we've read and heard and nourish it with us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, your bread of heaven. We ask it in his name. Amen. So Peter and John are going up to the temple at the traditional time of prayer, the ninth hour, the Bible tells us, which for us would be three o'clock in the afternoon. As remember, the apostles and most of the early believers are still Jews, right, as well as as being Christians. And they're coming to take part in worship, uh, the same kind of worship that their people had enjoyed for centuries. And this particular day, as they're going up to the temple, they meet a disabled man, uh, a man who had been placed at the gate to beg from those who were entering. Uh, and we're told he's unable to walk. But he had friends. And they put him in what was obviously a good position, figuring, uh, you know, probably it would be difficult for people to enter the temple to offer a heartfelt worship to God uh, and to utterly ignore this poor lame man in the process, right? So Peter and John saw the man, they stopped. Uh, we're told that Peter fixed his attention on him and demanded uh, that the man look up at them, which ironically is really what the man wanted for himself, wasn't it? He wanted somebody to look at him. That's why he was where he was. Uh, and I can imagine if his experience was like that of uh, most beggars, people probably tried really hard not to notice him, right? I mean, think about it. You know, if you, if you see somebody who's needy and you either don't have anything to give them or you don't want to give them anything, what do you do? Uh, you try really hard not to notice them, right? That's what most people would have been doing. And so when Peter and John stopped uh, and looked at him and, and they said, look at us, the man must have perked up a little bit thinking that they were going to drop some cash in his tin cup. Only to hear Peter say, I don't have any silver or gold. And you can probably visualize what must have happened to that man's hopeful expression to hear Peter say that, right? But Peter didn't stop there. He went on and he said, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he reached down and he took the lame man by the hand and he pulled him up as strength flowed into his feet and into his ankles so he could now bear his own weight. He was completely restored to health, walking and jumping and praising God. And I love, I love this quote. One commentator said of this, the language itself literally leaps just as he leaped. So this was a great day and the people who knew the man because they had gone in and out of the gate many times and had seen him often were filled with amazement and undoubtedly praised God with him. How could you not? And they would have done this because they understood at once what had happened. That a miracle had taken place. That something amazing had happened. And that genuine power had been displayed in this man who two minutes ago hadn't been able to just even stand on his own. To find himself now liberated to leap all around Solomon's porch in the temple. And it got everybody's attention. And now that Peter had that attention... He was going to make use of it, leaving uh, an example for we pastors, uh, an example that uh, any old lame excuse makes a good segue into a sermon. See what, see what I did there? <laughs> see, if Dee laughed at it, I know it was funny. Anyway, 
because it's at this point that Peter began to preach his second sermon after the one he had preached at Pentecost. And he was trying to do the same thing here as he had done on the earlier occasion. The thing that every good and godly sermon must do if it's going to serve the interests of the kingdom and give glory to Christ and be used as a means of grace. And that is, brothers and sisters, to preach the lethal penalty of the law and the redeeming grace of the gospel at the same time. And so Peter, in laying all that out, he starts by confronting the crowd with their sins and detailing their rebellion and and the hand that they had in the disobedience that had led to the death of the Messiah, uh, whether they personally took part in the actual deed or not. Uh, And and having thus laid out God's righteous case against them, he he appealed for their confession and for their repentance. And, And he finally closes out his message by pointing his hearers to Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior of the world. Because just like in his sermon at Pentecost, this new sermon had one focus, and church, that focus was on Jesus. And what a great example that is for me and for every single pastor in modern-day America as we enter uh, this 246th year of our republic. Just preach Jesus. Amen. Right? Can you imagine? I mean, what, what a novelty, right? What, what, what a concept to preach Jesus in a day when the average evangelical church is preaching anything but. Uh, because I can almost guarantee you if that same extraordinary act of healing occurred today in 9 out of 10 churches, uh, it would have been focused not on Jesus, but instead it would have been focused on the men who were involved in the process and on the mechanics of trying to recreate the miracle, complete with an Oprah special, right, of the healed man telling his story and on the chance for a media blitz and, and a book deal and, of course, the all important opportunity to monetize the whole thing in the process which is why we like peter need to say with clarity the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob the god of our fathers glorified his servant jesus and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and i want you to notice here when peter refers to jesus as god's servant as he does there, he's using the same idea that occurs in Isaiah 52 that was, would have been well known to his hearers in that first century, where the coming servant of God is described as the one by whose wounds were healed. The servant Messiah who would cause the eyes of the blind to be opened and what? The lame to leap like a deer. And so when Peter uses language, it's clear he's thinking of Jesus as the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And at the same time, Peter was preaching that Jesus was a real man. So remember earlier when Peter spoke to the paralyzed man, he referred to Jesus as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So it was not some imaginary, it's not some philosophical Jesus that Peter's proclaiming. It was a Jesus that they all knew. It was a Jesus who actually lived in Nazareth and the one who had traveled the country teaching and healing and doing good. And so Peter, in putting those two ideas together, the idea Uh, of Jesus as the Messiah of Isaiah 53 and as the man from Nazareth. He's preaching a Jesus who's both the son of God and fully human at the same time. And brothers and sisters, without that Jesus, you don't have authentic Christianity. Peter's also very direct in speaking about sin, even more than in his earlier sermon. And he emphasizes the sin of the people in disowning Jesus and handing them over to Pilate to be crucified. 
And he does it very pointedly, and he does it in a very personal way, because as Peter begins to talk about the sins of the people, he uses the word you, right? Second person plural pronoun, right, Miss Carol? Did I get that right? <laughs> and he does it four times. He says, you handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. And you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And see, and, and Peter is saying this in the very city where the people had cried out against Jesus, crucify him. Crucify him. He was likely speaking to some of the very same people who had, who had screamed that. Perhaps to the very same religious leaders looking on who had urged the mob to riot for our Lord's death. And he's saying, you did this. You crucified him. And church, so did we all by our sin. We are all guilty of Jesus' death. And if we had been there at that trial, we would have likely all joined in with the crowd who were demanding it. And if you think that thought stings a little bit now, just imagine Peter saying it to the faces of the people who actually participated in Christ's death firsthand. But you know, Peter didn't allow people's feelings to stand in the way of preaching clearly. He wasn't pulling any punches. And neither can we, brothers and sisters, if we want to see the foundations of a robust Christendom go back up again in America. And more than that, in the lives of individual believers. And we need to try to accomplish it the same way that Peter did, who not only pointed to Jesus as the object of his message and then highlighted his listeners' sins, making it clear that the people had something to repent of, but his message also contained the redeeming offer of God's amazing grace. Because, you know, in the final analysis, Peter's interest and, and my interest today is not in merely condemning our hearers, but introducing them to, as Peter said, the author of life. That's the point. And so he says very personally, now, brothers, right? He, he doesn't act like he's superior, like he's speaking down to him. How could he when he had just said, you disowned, right? You disowned the holy and righteous when he repeated it. Because that was the very thing that Peter had done in denying Jesus on the night of his arrest, wasn't it? And so he doesn't stand aloof now as he appeals to these people, but instead like that great Reformed pastor, Richard Baxter, said he preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men and saying, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. James Boyce, if, if you know him in his commentary in this passage, says that phrase, turn back there, might be better translated, uh, flee to God. And he connects it with the imagery of the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. If you remember where there were towns set aside if an Israelite accidentally killed someone else. And uh, it was what we would call manslaughter rather than a first-degree murder. The killer could flee to that city of refuge and be protected from uh, any relatives of the deceased who might want to kill them back in retaliation. And so it would have been a powerful image as Peter told the people, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that as Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. And so now Peter's telling them and us in effect that even though we're guilty in the killing of Jesus, that God would forgive the repentant who flee to the refuge of the Christ that he provided so that your sins could be blotted out. So the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, 
Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And he says, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. And guys, uh, men, of, men of this church, we are those sons of the covenant. Ladies, you are the mothers and grandmothers of covenant kids. And for all of us together, collectively, God has made a covenant with our forefathers, and we are the beneficiary of that today in so many ways. Just like all the men and women of Peter's day were in the land of Israel, a covenant of genuine redemption and God-given freedom. But sometimes we still need to be reminded of what that's all about, don't we? You know, the kids know for a long time now have kind of made it a habit of uh, reading the Declaration of Independence every 4th of July. And, you know, if you were to ask most people how it starts out, they'd probably give you the, the line, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But, you know, that's actually the second paragraph. Uh, here's how it starts out. It says, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the cause which impels them to separation. Those, those are the solemn words that Thomas Jefferson used in the opening of the Declaration of Independence. And, and men like Jefferson and the founders didn't hide what they were doing, did they? They were bold about it. They declared it, right? That's what the text says. That's why it's called the Declaration of Independence. But you know, we as Christians are called on to make a bold declaration too. Right? Jefferson promised life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of human happiness, but the Christian is called upon to proclaim a death. And not just any death, but the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the deepest pronouncement a Christian can make. It's the central message of the Christian faith that Jesus died for us. Okay? Let that sink in for me. Church, Jesus <clears throat> didn't come just to teach us great moral lessons. He didn't walk this planet just to show us his miraculous gifts or to give his disciples the power to heal lame men. He wasn't sent just to establish a religion or to found a church. He came to die. To die as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Now, of course, the, the miracles help us believe. The teachings of Jesus help us to live. The, the church together collectively gives us support. But it's sac his sacrificial death, church, that brings us salvation. And it doesn't end there because, praise God, Jesus didn't stay dead. But was raised to life on the third day. And he reigns in heaven today at the right hand of glory as our prophet and our priest and our king. So, so what is it that we're declaring today? Right? What, what do we proclaim? We proclaim with Peter as he did before the people on Solomon's portico simply this. Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, willingly died in my place. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, who indeed it behooves heaven to receive until the time for restoring all things. 
And brothers and sisters, we're proclaiming that restoration every time we take the cup and the loaf together. Declaring boldly that the bonds that connected us to our old life of sin and that hobbled our liberty are broken and that today we are free. Free not to serve an earthly king, but to serve the king of kings, our Lord Jesus. You know, our, our declaration of independence may have given us the ability to live as a politically free people, but that can only take you so far. And that's only for this lifetime. But for those of us who believe Jesus Christ is our true freedom and our eternal liberty and our promise of a day of refreshing in the presence of the Lord, the same Lord who stands ready to meet you at his table today in this feast of freedom. Will you join me there? Let's pray. God, our Father, is truly right in our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and an expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time and in this place that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.